Before we get started with this year's study, John and I at Scripture Gems wanted to talk about the joy of having four Gospels. When we examine the Gospels at the start of the New Testament, we might be tempted to think of them as a biography of the life of Jesus. Considering that collectively these authors only touch on the birth of Jesus and then say virtually nothing for the next 30 years before giving us an account of the last three years before his death, I think it's fair to say that this would be a terrible biography. Jesus' earthly life was filled with stories. As the gospel writer John says in chapter 21, verse 25, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So, a question for us to ask ourselves is, why did the gospel authors choose to write what they did, And what did they want us to know most about Jesus and his divine role as our Savior? While comparing each gospel book, we might be curious as to why they are so distinctive. And for that matter, why are there four and not just one? Well, in keeping with their divine commission, the apostles took the message of Jesus throughout the empire. Jerusalem was the head of the church, But soon, central Christian communities began to be established in other areas, such as Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. At the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the Christian body began to lean towards Rome. As noted Christian scholar Justo Gonzalez writes, Apparently churches in some cities or regions had a particular gospel which was most closely connected to their history and traditions. Such was the case, for instance, with the Gospel of Luke in Antioch and the surrounding area. As contact among these churches developed, they began sharing their manuscripts and traditions, and thus the acceptance and use of a variety of Gospels came to be seen as a sign of the unity of the church. At a later time, many have pointed out the inconsistencies among the four Gospels in matters of detail. Early Christians were well aware of those differences, And that was precisely one of the main reasons why they insisted on using more than one book. They did this as a direct response to the challenge of Marcion and Gnosticism. Many Gnostic teachers claimed that the heavenly messenger had entrusted his secret knowledge to a particular disciple, who alone was the true interpreter of the message. The church at large sought to show that its doctrines were not based on the witness of a single apostle or gospel, but on the consensus of the entire apostolic tradition. The very fact that the various gospels differed in matters of detail, but agreed on the basic issues at stake, made their agreement a more convincing argument. End quote. Let's talk about Justo Gonzalez's comment that the gospels may differ in matters of detail. In our Western mindset, we can be obsessed with the accuracy of details and believe that the details equal truth. But let's look at another perspective. The Greco-Roman biography, or bios, was less concerned with relating historical events than with showing the character of the main figure through his or her words, deeds, and interactions. In other words, a bios may include a story that didn't actually happen, but it teaches something true about the character of the person. So, is this story then true or untrue? Remember the story of George Washington chopping the cherry tree with his hatchet? 
When his angry father confronted him, young George bravely said, I cannot tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. Washington's father embraced him and rejoiced that his son's honesty was worth more than a thousand trees. Well, that never happened. The account was invented after Washington's death by one of his first biographers. But it is one of the most enduring stories about George Washington because it encapsulates an inner virtue that he demonstrated throughout his life. So, is it true or untrue? Now, don't misunderstand me. The Gospels are not a bios. But the authors are less concerned with specific details and sequences than emphasizing the divine purpose of the ministry of Jesus, connecting his life to Old Testament prophecy and showing the road to discipleship. Perhaps it would be better to think of the Gospels as church documents with a certain biographical character, rather than as biographies with a religious tone. I like to think of them as theology in the form of a narrative, with the priority on theology. Remember that these authors are writing from another time and cultural perspective. There can be a real difference in how Eastern and Western cultures see the world. The Bible was written by those in an Eastern culture and setting. Religious scholar Sidney B. Sperry, in an article called Hebrew Manners and Customs in the May 1972 Enzyme, gives us this insight. Quote, in thought and speech, the Oriental, members of an Eastern culture, is an artist. The Occidental, members of a Western culture, on the other hand, may be thought of as an architect. When speaking, the Oriental paints a scene whose total effect is true, but the details may be inaccurate. The Occidental tends to draw diagrams accurate in detail. When our Lord spoke of the mustard seed as less than all the seeds that be in the earth, and the plant as greater than all herbs, he was speaking as someone from an Eastern culture. Any good botanist knows that the mustard seed of which Jesus spoke, though small, is not the smallest of all seeds, nor is the plant greater than all herbs. End quote. But was Jesus trying to teach botany? If we obsess about those details, we lose the truth that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. Yeah, when we study the Gospels, we don't need to obsess about each paint stroke, but rather look at the whole painting itself. With that said, there are different ways to study the Gospels. One way is to take each distinct book and harmonize them into a single story. John, can you help me explain what that means? Sure. Let me bring in a few of my friends. Matthew. John. Gospels as a harmony. <laughs> That's so nice. Notice how each separate voice harmonized together to give us a richer sound than we could have had with just one? One advantage of this harmonizing approach is that it gives readers a sense of the life and ministry of Jesus in some sort of chronological order. This approach presents highlights of his ministry and a broad exploration of divine themes. This is the method followed in the Come Follow Me study resources. But harmonizing has some limitations. 
Notice that each book no longer has its own distinct color. Be aware that no harmony of the Gospels can provide a complete account of Christ's life, because the Gospels were essentially individual testimonies written for different audiences and were not intended to be all-inclusive accounts of Christ's life and teachings. Also because the Gospels occasionally differ in their order of events, scholars have a difficult time establishing a precise chronology for a harmony. It is easier with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels because they relate many of the same events and teachings. But remember that while there is much that the Gospel authors agree upon, each has written to a different audience with a different purpose in mind. John's Gospel, in particular, contains an abundance of material not found in the other Gospel accounts, yet even the Synoptic Gospels present their shared material in ways that are unique to their Gospels. In other words, each evangelist wrote his account for a specific purpose and expected that his portrait of the Savior would be seen as complete in itself. When we only study them as a harmony, we will miss the unique emphasis of the individual gospel writers. An easy example of the gospel writers teaching their individual theological message in the form of a narrative can be found in the nativity stories of Matthew and Luke. We can see the theology of Christ Matthew is teaching by the details he includes. Allow me to summarize. Matthew paints a picture to his Jewish audience of a king born from the lineage of David, with a heavenly angel announcing the coming birth to Joseph in a dream and telling him the name the child should have, Jesus. He is born in Bethlehem, as prophets foretold, and his birth is so paramount that the heavens themselves are changed, and this sign is looked for and recognized by important men from afar who come following the star bearing kingly gifts, Even the mighty king of the land is so threatened that he murders children to try to destroy him. Joseph takes Jesus and flees to Egypt like the patriarchs before. And the Lord calls him forth from Egypt to be a deliverer of his people. So now let's take a look at Luke's portrait. Luke's version focuses on a Christ for all people. His genealogy goes back all the way to Adam, Jesus is the Savior of not just the Jews, but of all mankind. Luke introduces the coming of John the Baptist. Then the angel announces the good news to a poor young woman from an inconsequential town and tells her to name her divine son, Jesus. God brings them to Bethlehem, where Jesus is born in the humblest of circumstances. An angel announces the birth to shepherds in the field who visit him. When brought to the temple, the Savior is unnoticed by the Jewish leaders, but two humble elderly people recognize and testify of him. The Savior grows up in modest circumstances among the common man. These are two distinct messages sculpted around the same event. Sure, we can blend the two stories together and focus on what they have in common, but there is a reason Matthew and Luke developed their narratives the way they did including some details and excluding others. So let's look at a more sophisticated example in the famous story of Jesus calming the sea for his disciples. Both Luke 8 and Mark 4 seem to tell the story in a similar context, 
and as a standalone account describing the power of Jesus over the natural world. But although Matthew's account acknowledges this power, he uses this miracle to forward a particular teaching about what it means to be a disciple. We can see that in the verses leading up to the event. Matthew inserts an account that Luke includes in a whole different setting in Luke 9. But Matthew's account begins with Jesus giving a command to depart unto the other side. After it reads in Matthew chapter 8, let's start in verse 19, And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. As readers, we are already put in the mindset of the cost of discipleship. There is a price to following the Savior. Are we willing to pay it? Then Matthew launches into the calming of the sea story. Let's use Luke's account as well to compare the two. Notice right away that Luke's is a very straightforward account. Let's look at Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But Matthew continues his lesson on discipleship by saying that, in verse 23, And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. See, that is what disciples do. They follow Jesus. And why not? Could you find yourself in a safer place in the world than with Jesus Christ, the Savior? But even for the disciples, trouble comes. Luke's account, again straightforward, simply tells us that a storm of wind came on the lake and they were in jeopardy. But Matthew uses a different term to describe their peril, a great tempest. The Greek word seismos actually means earthquake. Think of the seismograph used to measure seismic activity of an earthquake. This seismos megas, or great earthquake, is almost universally associated with the destructions and tribulations that take place at the end of the world. The tempest in Matthew thus becomes a symbol for the difficulties disciples face as they choose to enter the ship or in other words, the church. So what do disciples do when facing such challenges? Let's go back to Luke's version of the story. Chapter 8, verse 24. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Notice they called him Master. The Greek means teacher or chief commander. In response, Jesus solves their problem. Then he discusses their faith and they wonder at him. But in Matthew's version, the disciples call out, Lord, save us, we perish, in verse 25. Not master, Lord. The Greek here is kyrie, the vocative case of the Greek word kyrios, or Lord. This is the Greek name of the God of the Old Testament. They are not calling on their teacher, but on Jesus as Lord. And they are asking what all good disciples of Jesus ask, and that is for him to save us. Why? Because without him, 
we will perish. But Jesus doesn't deliver them at present. It will not be on their timetable. Instead, he talks to them about their fear and lack of faith while the tempest rages about them. This is the time disciples need to learn faith and trust, when they most see how much they need the Savior. Then, after teaching them, Jesus exercises his power and gave them respite from the calamities of life. Verse 26 says, And there was a great calm. Matthew uses this story to teach about the price of discipleship and that following Jesus will not mean that we won't experience great tempests, but that we can be strengthened by the grace of Christ even in the midst of them. And eventually, in his time, we can be delivered and have great calm. Here, we have two messages using the same event. So this is just an introduction to the unique messages of the gospel authors. There is much to gain by considering how each gospel highlights individual aspects of the Savior's ministry and paints an individual portrait of the Savior. When the authors compose their texts, I think it's fair to say that they fully intended that each would be read as a complete and independent document, not just one part of an amalgamation of Jesus' life. Studying a harmony of Jesus' life can be a valuable approach, but an understanding of the distinctive testimonies of the four gospel authors will provide an even richer reward. So, did we pique your interest in this topic? For further study, we'll link a couple of articles in the description that will help to flesh out more of the things we talked about here and give you a richer understanding of the topic. I hope you'll check them out. Happy studying!